which are found between Psalm 120 and 134. But it's, it's called a psalm of ascent because Jerusalem, being literally seated on top of a hill, people would sing this psalm as they gathered for holy days, holidays and traditions, and they would ascend up to Jerusalem. This is why in Jesus' uh, triumphal entry, it says that he, have, he went up to Jerusalem. That's why the language is there in Matthew. The International Christian Embassy of Jerusalem points out that the idea of ascending to Jerusalem does not merely refer to geographical geography, though. Jerusalem was the site of the temple of God, therefore a place of spiritual ascent. Who shall ascend into the hill of the Lord, asked the psalmist, or who shall stand in his holy place? Psalm 24, 3. So as the Israelites would go to Jerusalem to make sacrifices, this would be one of the psalms they would sing. Can you just imagine with me for a moment? Droves of families leaving exile, leaving living outside of the city of Jerusalem, walking up to Jerusalem to gather for a formal holiday, a formal time of worship, and all the while worshiping their God together. This psalm starts with his people, God's people, remembering what God has done for them. And we've already established when this psalm was sung, that is, walking up to Jerusalem. But we also need to address why it was written. This psalm was not written by David, like most psalms were. But it was written likely in what's called the post-exilic era. As I mentioned earlier, the psalm was written by somebody and sang by people who were previously in Babylonian captivity. It was written around the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. So the people who would be singing the psalm had likely already been taken into Babylon, Babylonian captivity, or their family had been, and they had left Babylonian captivity, but not everyone had left yet. And so they would go up to Jerusalem to make sacrifices singing the psalm. If you remember back to Isaiah where we were, I don't know, a year ago now, or if you read other prophets, you'll see God's people were promised that they would be taken into captivity. This wasn't a surprise to them. They were promised that they would be taken into captivity. But they were also promised that they would be taken out of captivity. Their story would not end in captivity. Isaiah 40 through chapters 40 through 66 show us that final restoration that God is bringing, ultimately in the person of Christ. If you've been with us a while, you've heard us say before that God's people are a remembering people. It's our privilege and our duty to remember the things that God has done for us. And so the Israelites, as they're walking, as they're ascending up to Jerusalem, what they're doing here, they're remembering what God has done for us. And this idea of remembering is not, it's not far from us. We do this as a society here in America, do we not? We've, memor- 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 <laughs> we've memorialized, thank you, <laughs> we've memorialized, we've memorialized 9-11 for good reason. We've remembered the tragedy that was, and it reminds us of coming together and being one nation. And we've memorialized, we remember, wow, we remember other things as well, right? We have other holidays. We remember Christmas. We gather at Christmas time to remember Christ coming to earth, right? We remember Easter. We remember Christ's death and resurrection, right? As the ultimate apex of creation, when Christ came to redeem all of creation. We are a remembering people, but we don't want to just remember around specific holidays 
or specific instances. We want to be a people who remind each other regularly of what God has done for us in the past and what he is going to do for us in the future. The practice of actively remembering what God has done for his people is important to us. Here they're remembering of how God restored them, right? But do you remember how God restored you? Do you remember that individually, that morning that uh, Cricket was talking about, maybe in Sunday school, when it dawned on you for the first time and your eyes were opened? You were no longer blind, but you saw the light that God, that you were a sinner in need of a Savior. Or as Colossians 1.21 says, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, that you realized what you were doing was actually evil and that you were antagonistic towards God. You weren't neutral towards God. You were antagonistic towards God. That God revealed that to you was so gracious. When it says God's kindness leads us to repentance, what's that means? what that means is God's kindness shows us that we need to repent. That when you realize that that bad news that we talk about so often, but that God didn't leave us in the bad news, and it doesn't end in verse 21, that 22 is written too to say he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. That the one who you called enemy now reaches out and calls you friend. He literally took you from the enemy's side and placed you on his side and said, you are mine, and I am yours. Do you remember that, church? So what is Israel's response to remembering how God restored their fortunes? Well, it tells us pretty plainly in verse 2. Our mouth was filled with laughter, and our tongue with shouts of joy. They don't just sit around, church. They don't keep it to themselves. They don't think, hmm, cool. Jesus is my homeboy. Let's put it on a t-shirt. When you remember what God has done for you, are your t- is your tongue filled with shouts of joy? And let me challenge you with this. I'm not saying we're all going to be the hooper and holler, all right? God created us with different personality types, Right? But if we're hooping and hollering over other things and we're not hooping and hollering over what Jesus has done for us and it's not impacting our lives, let hear me, church. You m- might not know the gospel. You might not realize what I was just saying earlier, that you were an enemy of God. And God didn't look at you and say, yeah, you're a good one. I'll pick you out of the bad bunch. No. He took us as an enemy being hostile and alienated and actually stood in our place and took the punishment that we deserved. The, the, the Christian, let me back up for a second, not to get too far ahead, but it doesn't just end with their response among themselves, right? What does it say here in verse 3, 2b? Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The external, the big part about the Old Testament in particular is that God is doing a work among his people. And those outside look inward and see the work that God has done, that God has chosen a special people, that God has defended his people, that God has established his people. And then those around God's people say, obviously, we've heard, we've seen what God has done for them. 
This is amazing. God is causing other nations who are not his people to worship him indirectly, but still to worship him, saying that their God is a good God. The Christian should not be a mopey, Eeyore-ish character. We can have a tendency to look around the world and be just poor sports about it. We get so bent out of shape because, and I'm preaching to myself here, because the world is not going the way we want it to politically or morally or economically or socially. You have whatever you want to say there. Maybe it's something even smaller, which I've been here, but like a hobby or just someone we like who's being criticized. When we do that, when we get so bent out of shape and so turned into nods and, and emotional about that, we're communicating to the world that our hope is in the way that this world turns out. But as Christians, our hope and our end goal is not in any way in this world, but in the one to come. And it, because our hope is not in this world, we pray for God's coming restoration. So we see in verse four, restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Even though Israel had experienced restoration, they knew they needed a greater restoration. And they knew there will be a future restoration. God's people know his promises. These Old Testament believers knew his word and they're holding on to them. And we need to ask ourselves this. J.B. Phillips, the author in the early 20th century, wrote a book called Your God is Too Small, where he challenged his culture, saying your prayers are so temporal. You're praying for jobs. You're praying for peace and happiness and little stuff. Are we praying big? Are we praying that God would move hearts? Are we praying that God would move our hearts? Are we praying that God would change our attitude towards sin? Are we praying that God would resurrect a people and call us to worship him? What does restoration look like? Our world is looking for answers. In every tragedy, we try to find some sort of causality. We find someone or something to blame, and then we try to fix it or maybe just distract ourselves from it, right? For Israel, God had restored some of them. Some of them had left Babylonian captivity, but some were still there. And they looked forward to a day when they would all be together. For us, we're looking for restoration, but what restoration are you looking for? Are you looking for restoration in your work? Maybe you want a new job or a promotion or a new boss? Are you looking for restoration in your marriage because your spouse isn't who you want them to be? Are your child, your children aren't being who you want them to be? Or maybe it's you're looking for restoration by having children. All good things, but if we're looking for restoration in these things, are we really looking for the right restoration? The restoration God wants for us is greater than anything we can accomplish or anything we can even experience fully here on earth. God wants to restore our souls. This imagery of streams like the Negev in verse 4 is a geographical reference. The Negev was one of the most southern re regions of Israel, and it was dry and lacked water. That is, until the rain came. 
the ground would be cracking and no plant could flourish, right? This isn't like trying to live in Phoenix in the 21st century. This is like trying to live in Phoenix without any technology where you're planning and hoping for rain. But the farmers knew. They would farm, they'd plant their crop and wait and hope and wait and hope and pray and hope and then the rain would come, the negative waters would rise and the ground would flourish and they would receive a crop. This imagery is us and our condition. We were dry and dead in our sin without any hope of sustenance. But God stepped in and restored us. Rather than leaving us in our state, dead in our trespasses and sins, as Ephesians 2.1 tells us, he made us alive with him by the death of Jesus Christ. As believers, we have been restored. But if we're honest, and some of you in here might feel this way, you're feeling the weight of the world, we grow tired and we grow dry. We're serving the Lord. We're on fire. We use that language all the time. We're on fire for Jesus. And then we're not. And we're just a ho-hum about our faith. If you're in here today and you feel dry spiritually, I want to ask you and challenge you, have you prayed that God would restore your spirit? That God would remind you, as David writes in Psalm 51, restore to me the joy of my salvation and renew a right spirit within me. That's a bold prayer. Because if you can move your heart, I'd like to know that. Because God can move our heart. This realization of being restored but looking forward to a greater restoration is one of the major themes throughout Scripture. Romans eight nineteen through 22 tells us, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subject, subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. See, even though Jesus initiated the kingdom of heaven when he came, lived the perfect life, and died on the cross and rose again and ascended to heaven, all of creation is longing for his return when he will make all things new. This is what theologians often refer to as the already but not yet paradox. We are currently living in the kingdom of God that Jesus inaugurated, but we are waiting for the complete restoration in his second coming. In 1 Corinthians 16.22, Paul actually alludes to this, and I don't have this up on the screen, so um, bear with me, but if you want to write it down and look at it later, 1 Corinthians 16.22, he says this, If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord come. Paul is clearly disturbed by the idea of anyone not having love for the Lord but then he shifts saying this phrase, our Lord come. And that phrase, our Lord come, is not written in the typical language of the New Testament. It's written in what's called um, Aramaic, which is the spoken language of the time, not the written language. This likely indicates that it was something that was said regularly, like a greeting or a slogan or a word of encouragement. 
Many scholars believe that this word Maranatha was said by the disciples to each other when dealing with persecutions or struggles. When I'm typically dealing with a struggle, I say, God, help me. (laughs) God, help us, right? Which is good. We want the Lord's help. But what we see from Paul here isn't just, God, help me be good. God, help me get through this. It's Jesus, come back. Jesus, come be here. I want you, Jesus. Do you want Jesus to come back? Do you? Do I? If we're really going to pray for God's restoration in our life, full restoration in the world, then what we're praying for is that he would come back. Church, please hear me when I say this. And I don't want to sound like a curmudgeon or someone who's just down in the dumps. But we are not going to find some sort of utopia here on earth ever. If the world goes to junk and we fall off the grid and we're all living in a commune, that's not going to be utopia. Like, let's be real. I know some of you in here are like, I disagree. (laughs) But in all seriousness, we cannot find utopia on our own and in this world. We need Jesus to come back. And that's what we're looking forward to. And as you look at the world, and if you're concerned about the direction it's headed, I want to remind you that our God who created this world loves this world. He delights in this world. He knows the conditions it's in. And he will restore this world. And he will ultimately restore his bride, the church. So finally, the question must be asked. We remember what God has done for us in restoring our fortunes, giving us Jesus, calling us by name, leading us to repentance, trusting in him for for the forgiveness of our sins. And we're waiting for him to come back. So what do we do now? Do we just twiddle our thumbs and have cool prayer meetings where we talk about Jesus coming back and wait for him to come back? No, he's actually very specific with what we should do. It's kind of cool about the Bible. It likes to give us instruction. In verse 5 through 6, I'll just read it again for us. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Since we know that God will restore his creation, what do we do? We sow. We sow, church. And what I mean by so, we share the good news of the kingdom of God. Jumping ahead of myself, but just to reiterate it, we do it everywhere. Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, again, wanted to really live in those exilic prophets and some of the supporting passages. God tells his people how we should act in captivity, right? Babylon was not a good place for the Israelites to live. They didn't want to be there, like, just to be clear. We are living in a time and we'll continue to live in a time where it becomes more and more tough for believers to live. We shouldn't expect it to be comfortable. Again, we're not of this world. But Jeremiah 29, 4 through 7, God tells his people how to live while they're in captivity. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Real quick, notice there. Did Babylon send Israel into captivity? Secondarily, they did, but primarily, 
God sent Israel into captivity. So build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. In this passage, the Lord wants his people to make use of their time in captivity, and he wants them to plant themselves there. Everything the Lord commands there is not a temporary vacation time activity. It is building a life and establishing roots and building themselves there. I don't garden. I am positive, though, that I can't have an orange. Actually, no, I take this back. I have an orange tree in my house. I just forgot because it hasn't had oranges in a year because we just planted it. Oranges don't just come out of nowhere, right? If you create a garden, that takes time, right? Having, getting married takes time. Having children takes time. Raising your children to have wives and husbands takes time. Them having children. We're talking generations here. What God is establishing, he's calling us to be among the people, be among the world that we're living in, right? And not just pull ourselves out of it, but in the end, seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile. We're called to be that light, to seek the good order that God has created that the lost world doesn't see. We're going to sow something into our lives and the lives around us. We have choices, choices and there are seeds and crops, and obviously this is metaphors, that we're going to sow that are going to produce a poor crop or that's going to produce a gospel crop. And we have to decide, how are we going to live our life? That's what God has entrusted us with. What seed are you going to sow? In the same way that God placed Israel in captivity in Babylon, he has placed you and me in Brevard County, or if you're not from here and you're visiting with us, in another place where you live in, what is it, September 12th, 2021. And the works that God prepared for us to walk in that he tells us in Ephesians, he knew the context that he would call us to walk in those. God is not surprised by our culture. God is not surprised by our context. So if it gets even harder for us to be a Christian in Brevard County in Florida, God knew that. And he still calls us to sow the seed of the gospel. And it is a privilege and an honor to do so. As believers, we can look back and know what God has done for us. And while we wait, we are going to grow tired at times. And this is why it's absolutely essential, critical, whatever word you want to throw in there, that we gather together here on Sundays and remind each other of that. And that we gather together on Wednesday nights and that we gather throughout the week individually and, and as, as in our families and, and remind each other that Christ came and died for you and me so that we could one day live with him in eternity. This psalm shows us 
that we can experience and taste that joy here and now, despite our context. If we sow sparingly, church, we will reap sparingly. So let's sow plentifully. We do not need to have a scarcity mindset when it comes to sharing the gospel, when it comes to sharing the kingdom of God with others. We're not looking for the right people to share the gospel with. We're looking for people to share the gospel with. If they're breathing, they're a candidate to hear the gospel. Right? So the shouts of joy that are found in verse 6 ties us back to verse 2. God's people rejoice in what he has done for them, and they rejoice in telling other people what he will do for them. I feel like sometimes as believers, we can get into the mindset of kind of remember the old days. Remember, remember when it was easier. And we think that when our cultural culture is becoming, we want to think more when our culture is more in line with Christianity and Judeo-Christian values. And I 100% agree that our cultural norms as a society have shifted from those traditional beliefs, and it is a tragedy. Like, it is sad. This shift in culture in many ways has made being a follower of Jesus harder, more uncomfortable. But with that said, and and by the way, I'm only talking recent history. Like, there are other societies and cultures that have had a much harder time being a Christian than we have right now, even today. Like, we are so blessed to this day with our ability to be a believer here in in the U.S. But with that said, we're not, we we can see it and kind of feel it slipping further and further, right? We're not in any way holding on to a kingdom of our own that we are are like further uh, previous generations created for us, right? We're not trying to keep the empire lines drawn of Christendom. We have clear instructions in scripture to make disciples. We don't have clear instructions in scripture to create cultural Christianity. And that's why this imagery of sowing carries us into that conversation. Despite how hard or inconvenient our context is, our job as believers has always been and will always be to sow the seed of truth and reap the harvest that the Lord provides until the Lord comes back again. There have been a lot of missionaries who have shown us great examples of this throughout history. Some have insane stories of entire villages coming to know the Lord in huge numbers, but then there's some that the Lord looks at, or excuse me, not the Lord, that the world looks at, and they're just like, why? Why'd they waste their life? We all know this, or most of us, I would assume, know the story of Jim Elliott and team who died the moment they encountered 10 of the Heroian warriors the world looks at a story like this, right? And it's just like, couldn't he have used his gifting better? Couldn't he have gone to a culture that was more accepting of other religions? Maybe would want to have a dialogue regarding Christianity? Why waste his life? He was only 28 years old. He had a daughter and a wife. But for Jim, this was how he waited for Christ's return. Sowing seed where no one else was sowing. Another example where the world would maybe look at and say, why is William Carey? Carey was a missionary to India in the late 1700s and early 1800s. And many in the world would classify William Carey's missions work as just a slow failure. Carey believed that the crazy idea, 
He believed that the Great Commission applied to all Christians, which was pretty revolutionary for his time. He quoted this in a, in a letter to his, his uh, parish. Multitudes of believers sit at ease and give themselves no concern about the far greater part of their fellow sinner, who to this day are lost in ignorance and idolatry. In 1792, Carey organized a mission society, and within a year, he moved his family to India. Their time in India was not good, especially early on. They were poor. They severely underestimated how much it cost to live in India, and they were deserted by their missions team. In the early stages, his five-year-old son, Peter, actually died of dysentery, and it sent his wife into such a state of mental illness that she ended up dying as well. During the first seven years of Carrie's missions work, he did not see a single convert. And in the 41 years he was there, without any furlough, meaning he did not take a day away from India, he saw maybe 700 converts in a nation of millions. That doesn't meet our typical American church growth model. Many of us would be tempted if we had a missionary in the field who wasn't seeing that kind of progress. We'd be like, we need to get them out of there. Put them in a place where they'll be more successful. Let's get a good return on our investment, right? But our American view on success does not dictate how the Lord views success. In the psalm, it says that the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion. And God's people pray to the Lord to again act and restore their fortunes. Their goal or measure of success for the believer is seen here. We go out sowing seeds of the kingdom. Success is making much of Christ. We are successful in our seed sowing or sharing the gospel when we, in fact, share the gospel. God is the one who saves. God is the one who restores. And to quote William Carey, he said, it is the duty of those who are entrusted with the gospel to endeavor to make it known among the nations. India is still a massively unreached nation. According to the Joshua Project, around 95.6 of the uh, nation is still unreached. But around two, I say around, it's a very specific stat, 2.03% of the population calls himself Christian. That's in a population of 1.4 billion people. Billion with a B. That is 17% of the world's population in India. So, when you do the math, there are around, on lower ends, 28 million Christians, fellow brothers and sisters in India. William Carey is not the only missionary to India, but he was first to go and planted the seed and sowed that seed for 41 years. And it's growing in India at a rate about of what this is reporting of 3.2% a year. People are coming to know the Lord. Praise God. See, and Carey knew, how do you stay doing the work of God for 41 years with minimal fruit? How do you do that? Carrie knew his job. Carrie knew his calling to sow the seed. And he knew that the seed wasn't in the ability of 
It wasn't in his ability, but it was in the power of the seed itself. He knew Isaiah 55, 10. This verse for me has been critical to my life lately, saying this, for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Church, the seed we sow is powerful. We are a weak vessel with a powerful seed. And it is amazing that the Lord has entrusted us with that. And so what are you sowing while you wait? Are you hoping to just pass time in this life and get by? Entertain yourself with hobbies, raising a family and just establishing successful children, a successful life for yourself? All okay things. But why do we have hobbies? Why do we have a job? Why do we want to raise successful children? Why do we even want to have children? Why do we want to get married? Why do we want to have friends? For more fields to sow in. For more mouths to proclaim the glories and excellencies of Jesus. Now don't hear me putting a new law or new measure of salvation there. Jesus, keeping again with agrarian illustrations in Matthew eleven twenty eight says this. We all know it. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your soul, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. We come to the Lord for rest, and in the rest, we work alongside him with his guidance to plant seed where he will create a harvest that will be reaped. Are you hoping for restoration today? Church, our God is a God who restores. Justin, you and team can join me. This is a psalm of joy. I mentioned this in the beginning. This is a psalm of joy because despite Israel being in exile, God's people know that he will in fact save. Their faith is in the promise that has not wavered and they fully expect him to deliver. There's two aspects of the psalm today, restoration and what you're doing while you wait. And both have applications that I want us to walk away with. First, I want to ask, where do you need restoration today in your life? For some of you, you've never experienced restoration from your sin. You're living in your sin. You have not pleaded the blood of Jesus Christ for your forgiveness. And you don't know that. And I want to encourage you, today is a day of salvation. Make that decision to follow Christ. Repent of your sin and turn to him for the forgiveness of your sins. And he is faithful to do so. No matter the background, we don't need to carry that burden of working for our salvation. He has done that work for us. For some of you in here, there's areas of your life where you need restoration and you're seeking restoration. It might be in your marriage or in your parenting. It might be in your career. Maybe you're struggling with an illness or maybe you're just struggling with anxiety. You're looking at the world and you just, you can't get away. You're afraid of what's going to happen. And God is calling you. Say, bring it to me. Bring me your burdens. 
bring me your cares because I care for you. If that's in you today, I will be down front. Richard is here. Um, I was going to say Austin, but he must be with the kids. There's several others. Your community group leader. Brett's a community group leader. I want to invite you to pray with us. Seek the Lord for restoration today. In the same vein, what are we doing while we wait, church? What are we doing? Are you trying to fill your time, trying to just get by? Or are you looking for opportunities to sow? Some of you in here might not know where to sow. Well, for one, last week, Tim talked specifically about the word and to know the word, to memorize the word, to study the word. We need to sow into ourselves. We need to sow the word of God into our own hearts, into our own minds. When we memorize scripture, we're talking about this in community group this week, we are meditating on it. It is consuming our minds and our thoughts. We don't just pull it out as like a quick little, like, ha, I got scripture memorized. No, it changes the way we think. It renews our minds. So sow seeds of scripture in your own life, church. Secondly, our family, right? If you are married or if you have um, children, your parents, your brothers or sisters, sow seeds of truth and scripture into them and don't stop. Some of them might be believers. Some of them might not be believers. Sow the truth into them. Third, our children here at Trinity. Church, it is a privilege for me to have three children here at Trinity. Some of you in here, I know, share the gospel with them in there. And I want to tell you, thank you. Thank you for doing that. And I want to echo what Cricket said earlier. We have children in there who don't know Jesus yet. They have not come to say, I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. Let's share the gospel with them. And if you're not even serving in them, know them when they're running around here. Share the truth of Jesus with them. And I'm going to blast off these other ones. Our coworkers, fields to sow. Our hobby pals, uh, fields to sow. Our friends at other churches need encouragement. Crosswalk. You know, you, you're in the Word. Text Alex Scripture. Text Alex Bowman Scripture. Text Melinda Scripture. But just as we're in our life, our waitress at a restaurant, our regular, whoever we encounter just in the world, if they're breathing, they're a candidate to hear the gospel. Wherever you are and whoever you're with, it is the duty and the privilege to sow seeds of the kingdom of God, knowing that God and God alone will produce a harvest while we wait. So while we wait, church, look forward to the day when Christ returns and look forward actively by telling others what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do when he comes again and restores us to himself and our hearts will be made glad. So let's stand together and sing as we go out this week.